Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3. I'm still in Boston and today I'm here with Ivka Kalush. She is the Chief Investment Officer of Prometheus Capital, a ESG SRI investment manager based here in Boston. She has a very interesting story about how she got here to form Prometheus with her colleagues and what she's doing now in ethical investing. Prometheus Capital is a novelty in some respects in that it is a majority woman-owned investment firm here in Boston. And with that, I'd like to invite Ivka to the podcast. Ivka, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Daniel. So we usually start out by asking our guests how they got started in the investment business and how they ended up where they are today. What's your story? Um, I, I started out as a biologist. I was, I was a scientist at heart, and uh, when I went to university, I studied biology. And the reason I didn't pursue that was that I was just terrible in the lab. Um, I, I really like to pursue questions I have as deep as they go. And, and in the scientific world, it's much more about structuring things, trying to isolate uh, constants and variables and focus on one thing at a time and my brain doesn't work that way and so I was just very messy and chaotic in the lab so I figured out that I need to do something else and so I thought I would go into something that was biology related that tapped into some other uh, interests that I had particularly in uh, economic development and so I thought I would work for something like the UNEP or the UNDP in, in the emerging world on issues of deforestation and, you know, already then climate change was coming up uh, in terms of how various parts of the world were going to be impacted by global warming. So I wanted to work on these issues. And so I went back to graduate school at the Fletcher School for that. And it turned out that as I was graduating or finishing up my graduate studies, uh, which were focused on environmental economics, the Iron Curtain fell. And so I found myself on a plane to Prague because I was hired by a consulting firm to, to help open up an office in what was still Czechoslovakia at the time, uh, working on privatization of basically state-owned companies and reorienting them towards a market economy. And so going, I, I just fell into a job where I was had all this competence as a biologist and as a theoretical thinker uh, into a job where I had to figure out how companies made money, how to value them, because a lot of this involved selling the assets or at least coming up with a valuation for them to, to distribute as securities. Um, and so it was, uh, it was a boot camp in learning how to analyze and come up with value for, uh, for assets that were also changing very dramatically because of the market situation. So that's, so I did that for a few years and also worked for the same consultant, which was Arthur D. Little, in their metals and mining practice, uh, working for companies all over the world 
but same kind of job is is going through their business lines, figuring out where they had issues, valuing them. Um, so I got a very intimate look inside of companies, how companies operate. And it was because I was traveling all over the world while I had two children that I decided that I it was not a sustainable career for me. And so so I decided to take a sabbatical by going back to business school for in a one-year program at INSEAD and just looked around and tried to figure out what would work for me in terms of the things that were interesting and fit with my way of connecting a lot of pieces together and always wanting to be uh, challenged with you know, and always asking questions and trying to solve solve what was you know making the world tick and making companies tick and so I ended up going into asset management in my first job as an analyst and since I had clear capability in in um, metals and mining I ended up being the mining analyst at Putnam Investments and then starting from there I, I moved into uh, portfolio management and. Over a succession of jobs and over 21 years, I, I ended up at Prometheus, which is a new company. We are majority women-owned, and one of the things I've observed managing money over the last two decades is that the number of women in the business has shrunk, as has uh, the diversity of thought, and I think this is a problem, uh, and doing that from the inside is hard. Uh, manage or managing change from the inside is hard, and so Prometheus is a response: is is to do things differently and to re-embrace diversity, not only of background but of thought, and to get away from a lot of groupthink that I've observed in the business, and how that is detrimental to uh, returns in portfolios. That all sounds very interesting, and we'll chat a little bit more about Prometheus a little later in the podcast. But before we do, I just want to circle back to something you said about your background in biology, because that's, I'm guessing that's fairly unusual in the investment management business. Most people are from a, a finance or an accounting or a quantitative background. Did you, to some extent, feel like a little bit of an outsider, spoke a different language perhaps, or...? Um, by the time I arrived in asset management, I didn't feel like an outsider because I had had this serendipitous trek to to that point in time. Um, but I think that the biology, like investing, is is about a lot of data, and it's about a lot of information and making sense of it. So, and also having to understand things from very close up. And so that part is very applicable. And so I feel like in, in finance, a lot of people go through programs where they actually haven't done a lot of statistical analysis, and they don't know how to separate noise from information, and they, they confuse correlation with causation. And I feel like my scientific studies really drilled that into my head to, to understand how to look at a lot of data, and how to figure out when it's really important and when it's just noise. And also, again, not to confuse just because things look alike to, to see, to assume any sort of causality there. And I think that served me well. You've had this career in asset management. You now decide to launch Prometheus. What was the catalyst to going out and trying to start it to, and to do it on your own? Um, so we are focused on values-based investing in ESG, and I think the there's been a lot of development in that field, starting from you know just some true believers and a lot of skepticism to more and more adoption of ESG and sustainability as a source of returns, as well as a, a way of getting involved in sort of intentional capitalism. And so, so from that perspective, it felt like the right time to build a business around that. But that's not unique. I think that's, that's been happening for the last decade or so. Um, it was more about finding the right partners who were like-minded and come with a diverse set of experience and who are all in on growing this business and also embracing diversity of our team, uh, feeling like to have a 
woman-led team of investors is important. The market needs that because there's there's fewer than 10% of managers who are women. And if you look at active managers, it's less than 5%. And then if you look at how much women manage in assets, there, there does seem to be a significant bias there. So that about 1% of assets are managed by women. And I think this is a real problem that we want to address as well. So in terms of starting the firm, what do you think have been some of the the biggest challenges and some of the biggest wins that you've had since you started Prometheus? So we're only two weeks old. <laughs> so not a lot of wins, except that there is, we've already had um, three pitches in two weeks. So there's definitely interest in what we're doing. I think a lot of consultants and uh, large plans have emerging manager programs. So they do look for women-led asset managers, and so that helps. But I think that the message really resonates, this combination of who we are, the fact that we're all ESG, but also because I have a very strong investment track record that I'm that I'm not allowed to take with me officially, but but it's been published. And last year I was I was selected as the number three woman asset manager in the U.S. and number nineteen in the world. So that also piques interest, and so it was the right place, right time, right partners to summarize. Very good. Well, hopefully you continue to get those pitches as the weeks roll on. In terms of that stat that you raised earlier about the level of female participation in asset management, it's no secret that it's low. But to be honest, I was surprised that it's that low. What do you think can be done to change it? Short of starting your own firm, which not everybody's <laughs> in a position to do, what are some things that might change it? So I think that there's, um, there's a lot of institutional inertia because if you look at the gatekeepers um, in between, I mean, so so let, let's start the other way around. Women will own the majority of assets within several decades, um, partly because of just transfer of assets, um, and women live longer, uh, and that's and that's the biggest that's the biggest area. So so the asset owners are certainly already close to parity. I'm not sure. I don't have the statistics. I think it might be around 40% and moving to to 50% and over. I must admit, I'm, I'm somewhat unclear on how that works because mm. I can understand that women live longer, but through, throughout history, the ratio of men to women has kind of stayed fairly stable, hasn't it? So how is it that all of the wealth is going to concentrate? It, no, no, it's not concentrated, but or, over 50%. If, 50%. So women are 51% of the population. Sure, um, but that's fairly and then stable, where the wealth—that's right—and yeah. where the wealth is, which is in countries like the U.S. and Europe and in Asia, developed mm-hmm. Asia, and emerging Asia, um, then you have that transfer going on where the wealth has really developed. The transfer to the next generation in most countries is disproportionately to women. I'm not saying eighty okay. percent, but over fifty percent. So, okay. so we have the asset owners. Then we have this whole generation of millennials who are also starting to inherit wealth and and generate a lot of wealth, and their values are very different. Um, so they want to see a diversity. They want to see intentionality in their assets, and they want to see diversity in who is managing the money. And yet we have gatekeepers who sort of represent the asset management industry, say, 30 or 40 years ago. So I think I don't know what the statistics are in Australia, but in the U.S., about 13% of RIAs, registered investment advisors, are women. So so you have this group of asset owners who's getting close to 50%, but yet their their advisors are mostly men. The consultants, I don't know what the statistics are there, but they also see this as the norm. And so I'm not sure what is there, there's some kind of institutional bias so that the way I talk and a lot of my, not that there's a lot of them, but women peers, we don't look and we don't talk like the guys who are pitching the business. And so, so to, one of the best ways to, to confront that bias is to address it right up front and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sound or look like the person that you're used to li- pitching to. Um, 
But in any case, there there is a an institutional barrier. I think we've been calling it the moat, that you can't get across the moat without a bridge. <laughs> Too many alligators. Um, and the fact that somehow we got into this situation where where also the marketers were perhaps not pushing the funds run by women as much, or maybe the feedback wasn't coming in so so that therefore companies weren't promoting women into those roles because they were managing fewer assets. So we have this kind of chicken and egg problem. It's, it's interesting to hear you speak about millennials. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about how different they are and how values-focused they are. Is that a difference that will last, or is that just part of being young and as they age, their priorities shift? That's a good question. Um, but I think they've grown up in a world where a lot of things are changing pretty quickly, especially climate. We have real evidence of climate change, and so I think that they feel like the gradual approach is not acceptable. So they want change fast. And so whether whether that will change over time, we don't know. But they are the biggest generation, and this, this seems to be their focus right now, is getting things repaired really fast before it's too late. They're also incredibly socially conscious. Uh, they're much more liberal in their thinking than their parents were. And that probably translates into the S and G as well, in terms of pushing for more of those strategies and more intentionality of their money. I know it's it's an unfair question, but if you had to sort of stereotype a millennial, <laughs> how would you do it? Yeah, so they are. I mean, that's a good point. They are used to getting information very fast, and they're used to they're used to having a lot of data. So it is about speed. And maybe that's where some of the impatience comes from. But my experience with the millennials is that they're very serious. And maybe because their experience with the world has been shaped by the Great Recession and then by climate change. Uh, and so they're, they're very serious and thoughtful and feel like our generation, and I'm, I'm a I'm tail-end baby boomer, so that my generation has left them a mess and that they have to fix it, and they're taking on that burden, and that's a very serious burden that they carry. That's my experience with them. So you're a tail-end baby boomer. I, I've been <laughs> described, a friend of mine told me this term, I'd never heard of it before, called a zenial. <laughs> Apparently it's in between a Gen X and a millennial, and the definition is you have to be born between the Star Wars A New Hope and Star Wars Return of the Jedi. So I'm, I'm right in the middle of that. So. Yes. Well, the other thing I've heard is that millennial is not just a an age, it's a mindset. And so I think there's a lot more millennials out there than there are actual millennials because, you know, there's plenty of people, I would put myself in that category, who are also um, impatient about change for undoing some of the harm that's been done. Now, we were chatting before we started recording, and you mentioned that Prometheus is built on a fairly strong set of values. Can you tell us what they are and how that helps you in the job of investing and creating a portfolio? Sure. So our values are, because of who we are, diversity, humility, because we feel like there's no way we will know everything. Um, the markets should be humbling to everyone. So we want to make sure that we're humble, humility, respect, because that's really important in terms of all of the stakeholders, you know, our colleagues, our vendors, our clients, our communities. It sort of ties back into the humility as well of, of being able to accept all different opinions and sources of data and frames of reference, objectivity, which one would hope every asset manager would have, and finally intellectual curiosity. So those all fit together and we feel like they all create an investment philosophy that is about being able to take what the market has to offer and evaluate it objectively and because we aren't we're trying to eliminate bias in our decision-making um, and because we want to be disciplined about how we manage that we can actually deliver investment returns built upon those values. And then furthermore, because we are an ESG-focused firm, is to also use those 
core values to reflect the values of our clients. You mentioned that one of the purposes of the values is obviously to reflect those of your clients, but also to improve the quality of your decision making. Yes. So, and particularly in terms of not making biased decisions, you use that word bias. How do these values help you do that? So, so the values are reflected in how we manage our investment process. Uh, it is a quantum mental process, so we use a lot of data um, and quantitative inputs, uh, basically to manage what we don't know and don't own, because we feel like the biggest risk in our portfolio and in any portfolio is the unknown and the unowned. Um, and it it seems that most managers build their portfolios from a point of knowledge. Uh, and Michael Porter always said, buy what you know, and we feel like you can't develop conviction unless you have a grasp of what you don't own and don't know, and you can manage that risk. And so we use the quantitative inputs and screens to observe and evaluate a constantly changing investment universe. We also rely on building out a multidimensional risk matrix to figure out where we want to be invested. And the risk matrix is meant to represent the market opportunity, but with some intentionality in there to, we want to mitigate risks that we don't want to take, and we want to focus on risks that we do want to take, and those would be um, in terms of achieving alpha by finding arbitrage opportunities that, that our quantitative tools will find for us, as well as narrowing down the investment opportunity set to securities that also, again, reflect the values that we think our clients want us to reflect in the investment. So with that quantitative process, data is always an issue with quantitative research. Are you looking for the ethical and the social considerations at that quantitative stage, or is that more about the traditional screening that fund managers do, and then later you look deeper at the the values-based issues? It's both, and there is much more quantitative data out there that has no um, ESG information in it. Um, so, so the vast majority of the quantitative data is based on company fundamentals, and some part of it is also based on market sentiment fundamentals, sort of technical data. But there are also ESG factors that we build into our screens because they are um, material, we'll talk about materiality here, but there's there's some ESG factors that most of the quantitative data providers have found to have some information in them, and so we add them to the screens. Okay, can you give us some examples? Um, so one is disclosure. ESG disclosure has has a reasonably high predictive, sort of alpha predictive component to it. We can, we can think about why that would be, but companies that are willing to disclose means that they can be called on whatever that they're disclosing. And so so shining shining light on anything is a good disinfectant, but it also does seem to change behavior. And so perhaps that's why that one works. Another one is actually um, percent women on boards and percent women in management. Uh, diverse companies and women being a proxy for diversity because it's the easiest one to count um, seem to perform better and you know that would be a sociological discussion as to why, but it intuitively it makes sense if you if you have a diversity of opinion and decision making, it also leads to adapt adaptability. You know, if you think about this is my biology training speaking, but there's so much redundancy built into your genetic makeup, and the reason for that not that there's intentionality into evolution, but because you have this redundancy, then you're able to adapt when things change. Because one gene that might have been suppressed all of a sudden becomes protective when the environment changes, and so it's it's the same kind of thing uh, in in running businesses that if you have more diversity, then you're you're better able to handle uh, what what the competitors in the macroeconomic world have to throw at you. So those two are are a part of our screens. You reminded me of a story talking just then about the importance of diversity and in a biological context, of, of where the term banana republic comes from. 
And apparently what happened was the United Fruit Company, with the assistance of the CIA, actually uh, took over the banana plantations in a lot of South American and Central American countries. And in order to maximize profits, they only grew one type of banana. And then a bad disease came and wiped out the entire crop, bankrupted the countries, and hence the name Banana Republic. So That's right. A bad example of yeah, a lack of diversity. Sure, <laughs> but it's, it is an ESG yeah. issue as yeah. monocrop agriculture is, is very vulnerable because if you have one disease that decimates that particular uh, breed, and bananas are a perfect example, where most of the bananas you buy in the grocery store are only of one genetic type and they're under threat because of disease. And you've had that happen in cocoa and you've had that happen in coffee. So so this is this is just an example and now I'm getting nerdy about it, but there 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 are issues with scaling up because scaling up is great when you limit diversity, but then the the negative externalities are pretty dramatic. Yeah, so it's interesting to think of these things. You know, we were just talking about it in a biological context, yeah, yeah. But, all, but how the same rules might apply That's in right. a social context That's as right. well. Yeah. That's right. And there's been a lot of work done on women on in management and on boards, and there's critical mass theory because a lot of this study, again, it's, it's more sociological, trying to figure out where the added benefit is, um, and it's... And also when it happens, because if you just have one woman on a board, it doesn't seem to influence performance or behavior. But when you have three or 30 percent, depending on how many people, it seems to influence behavior because it's a big enough mass that you no longer have a minority minor majority or 30 mm-hmm. percent minority is no longer a real minority. And so it all of a sudden that contribution becomes normalized so that no one thinks everyone starts listening Mm -hmm. and and women seem to ask questions differently they want more data before they uh take decisions um they seem to connect things better sort of manage what the externalities are and this is very general not to say that everyone is like that but but those seem to be where the value it come from and one can imagine that that would apply to all sorts of diversity so it's it's something that makes its way into our uh, portfolios because um, it is a clear source, again, in big numbers. It's a clear source of incremental alpha potential, and we can do it at every yeah. level. So, Do you think it's sometimes missold? And by that, what I mean is I'm putting this out there yeah, in the yeah. dev- yeah, devil's yeah. advocate sure. questions, and I'm saying this as a man. You know, so <laughs> are, are people hearing, when people talk about diversity, are men hearing almost a zero-sum argument in that, all right, well, if if we've got to have more opportunity for women and other people, does that mean there's less for us? And does that somehow, you know, is that maybe doing it a disservice? Could it maybe be presented in a different way or where people could really understand the value of it, I guess? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand how it's threatening. And, you know, we have that discussion about all kinds of things, right, that things are seen through a zero-sum lens, like like with immigration, that person taking exactly, my job, yes, yes, exactly. um, that woman is taking my job, uh, as so opposed we to see that, well, yeah. I don't I don't know, and that wasn't intended, the narrative wasn't intended to be anti-male, it, it was meant to mm-hmm. be a narrative about how the diversity enhances returns. Mm-hmm. So then that's a win-win, because everyone yes. wants higher returns, Absolutely. right? Um, and and for the most part, at least on the gender front, you know, most people had a mother, <laughs> and many people have sisters and daughters, and they, if if they aren't themselves, uh, in their own case, they, they would probably advocate for those people. And so sure. I feel like we've gone beyond that in, in our culture, I hope. To well, see it as a yeah. zero-sum game. Well, but, there have um, been some statements I'm just thinking of in yeah. in um, the Australian media where some people have said, you know, we have to get representation up and that means you have to move out kind of thing. Right, and right. I, and when I read that, I just think, well, you're not really explaining the benefits of, that this is going to bring. Right, be. And, right. And perhaps if you explain the benefits of how it improves decision-making and, and how that has flow-on effects, people would be more receptive. Right, 
Right. And, you know, but I, but I also understand this idea that someone's going to replace me with a woman because they have to hit their quota. And, and that is a, an issue when you have, for example, a lot of, um, in Europe mostly, but I think Australia too, isn't there a, a minimum women on boards for public companies? Large There's company, not a minimum, public? but per se, but the proxy voters, the proxy advisors all have guidelines. Right. And you know, a company would know that they're going to keep getting the question. Same thing with fund managers. Some right. of the asset consultants now, if you're a large fund manager and you don't have a certain number of women, you won't get a high recommendation from them. And a similar right. situation with some of the pension funds. They won't invest in managers that um, don't have diversity in their team. So there is right. a, a growing consciousness. Right. Um, and I guess yeah, you're right. Sometimes that creates a fear for some people that maybe there has to be a right, right. a box checking that yes. Yeah. Yes. And you know, so maybe you have to turn on its head and say, well, why wouldn't you have the diversity? Like how is it how is it proper that ninety five percent of managers are men? Like how is that how is that right when, mm. you know, sixty percent of college grads are women and, you know, now half of business school graduates are women Women are moving. This is this field is so much worse. We talked to, before we started recording about mining, where there aren't, mm. but there's a lot more women in mining than there are in asset management. So how is that right? <laughs> You're right. It doesn't. Add up. It, it doesn't. doesn't add it up. doesn't make yeah. sense. And and again, correlation is not causation, but perhaps part of the problem with with uh, declining returns from our business could be coming from groupthink and lack of diversity. So. The, the whole point of this discussion mm-hmm. really is that to make better investment decisions in diversity. Right. And and one of the things that, that I learned a long time ago, I was lucky enough to, to meet Michael Malbison, and he's written some great work mm-hmm. on investment decision-making. And the point he made during our conversation was that to get that sort of wisdom of crowds effect, which diversity is trying to replicate right. that, it's it's actually something that's very fragile. And yes. it needs a certain set of conditions for it to work. Otherwise, it quickly descends into groupthink. Yes. And he listed three variables. You need people that are different, so the diversity. Mm-hmm. They need to have an incentive or some kind of skin in the game where their input matters. Right, agency. And then they need an aggregation mechanism that allows all the views to be put together Mm-hmm. where one view doesn't dominate over another. Right. And so I guess what my question is, is it's it's great that we focus on diversity because we need to, but that's only one of the three. Right. So what can we do on the other two? I don't know. <laughs> it's a great answer. I don't know. And and sometimes, um, sometimes these things just, I mean, it, th- there's always path dependency there, right? And... And maybe, you know, and it depends on how you get to that diversity, too. If it comes organically, that's the best way. But if you have a lot of inertia and institutional resistance to that, then how do you get there except for making, like, do do what's going on, which is say mm-hmm. we're not going to accept these, these offerings on our platform unless there's diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, or in Europe where they say you have to have at least 30% or 40% women on the board. To get there, and that can breed resentment, but maybe the others follow along as the the benefits of that diversity come through, so that it just becomes normal. Like when I was a kid, yeah. you know, you said doctor, and everyone assumed an old guy in a white coat, right? Now that's at least here fifty fifty. You yeah. know, all of, I always pick a woman doctor when I can. I feel yeah. much more comfortable with her. You probably yeah. feel more comfortable with me. I don't know, but well, so there's some but things the, I prefer. The some woman, things to be that's honest. right. So I think that these things change, yeah. and then all of a sudden you 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 no longer understand why it could have been like that to begin with. But it takes that that transition, which can be painful. And I think boards have that issue too. That the the experience of boards is that at first it's it's a painful process oh. to bring in women in particular because. They ask more questions. They're not interested in doing a quick decision, going to play golf. I'm, I'm exaggerating to make the point. Mm-hmm. And so at first, it's 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 uncomfortable. It's until a different way of making a decision. It's a different it? way of making decision. And so if you're used to one way, then changing it all up is uncomfortable. But then as that becomes normalized, then it, 
then everyone moves on and it's a lo- it's a non-issue. I'm just thinking with boards because this is a comment that has come out a few mm. times is that if every board has to get to 30% because that, that's mm. where you said critical mass sort right. of starts to kick in. Yeah. Are there enough experienced women out there? Like right. Obviously there's a lot happening to get more people into say STEM university. Right, right. But now today if we had to get to 30% today you know, would we have a situation where the same people are on you know, five, six, seven boards with a right. huge workload just because there's, there's yeah. not enough? Well, I mean, you could turn that on its head and say, are there enough mm. experienced men to fill well, the, the, the 90% <laughs> of positions? And so that's many of those, point. <laughs> there's, there's a first time for everyone to, yeah. f- to start their board service. And a lot of the, you know, on the flip side, a lot of the, just in general, people who end up on boards, they're just friends of the people who are already on boards. And so it's not necessarily that they are more qualified than the next person, but they are unknown, and there's always that hurdle of getting over that barrier. And and there is an issue of women being overboarded, partly because no one wants to take an unknown entity, especially if it's a woman, Mm -hmm. because she's unknown from, you know, from the perspective of the golf course and other (laughs) sort of areas where some of the boards might have had created other ties besides just in the boardroom and so the hurdle is higher and so therefore they'll tend to take a woman who's already had quite a bit of board experience which means that the average woman on a board sits on a lot more boards than the average man on a board so there is that overboarding issue so you do have that but but I think that that it's sort of like um, I think that that a lot of boards now are trying to do equal slates so at least you're bringing in so you can't say we want the best candidate if you aren't observing at least a broad range of candidates and so doing equal slates or I've heard um, a New Zealand company told me this that they call it over indexing that to correct the imbalances they actually have to bring in slates and this is not just for the board level but across the company in their recruits in their management teams that they over index to correct the imbalance they actually put more women on the slate but then there's still picking from sure. from a mixed slate. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't know if you saw today's Wall Street Journal with the news about Vanguard putting in a rule across their index funds about directors and how many directorships they have. So they, they're basically going to vote against companies where a director has more than four directorships. Okay. Which is roughly 10% of companies. So I wonder if that's going to disproportionately affect female directors. Yeah, perhaps, and which I is, which is an unintended out. consequence because yeah. I think Vanguard has also been on um, or been very influential in establishing voting guidelines that are sort of seeing ESG as being relevant and so adjusting their voting uh, for, for impact even though it's mostly index funds. Yeah. So getting back to ESG and SRI, mm-hmm. you made an interesting point earlier when we were chatting where you said that you've, you've run both sorts of investments, SRI investments, ESG mandates, and that you'd categorize the difference between the two as SRI was largely about what a company does, whereas ESG was more focused on how a company does it. Yes. And I thought that was an interesting idea, and I'd love it if you could explain a little bit more what what that means. Sure. Um, so, so the world has evolved, obviously, and, and SRI, I think, was, was mostly in the, in the 70s when it started, was mostly about the Vietnam War, and it was, um, it was started by religious organizations, or they were looking for managers who could run funds for them that would be free of weapons because it, it was in line with, with religious values. Uh, and then that evolved to free of tobacco and other sort of harmful things, things that seem to kill when used as, as prescribed. So that was exclusionary, what, what you did. Um, and, and there were movements uh, about extractive industries and involvement in certain countries. Um, apartheid was a big um, exclusionary uh, factor. So, so that was the SRI world, which was looking at what you did as a company, what you do determines whether you're, you're considered eligible for investment or not. 
I think the problem with that was that everyone's values are different. What I think is important or I don't want, I mean, I, we could probably, most pe- most people do agree that tobacco and firearms are, are harmful, but there's other areas where we, we wouldn't agree. And so, so your values and my values are all different. So to try to come up with a broader way of looking at at least do no harm to society and maybe have a positive impact is, is looking at how companies behave along the lines of environment, social, and governance factors. And governance was the early one, and I think most investors wouldn't even consider governance to be a part of necessarily ESG or sustainability investing, only because everyone has accepted that as being a way to measure companies that's not necessarily financially measurable in the near term, but has financial impact. And so trying to put the other areas, environmental and social factors and how companies measure up into that framework of the G, of the governance, and and evaluating companies relative to their peers and how they behave, what their impact is on the environment, how they impact their communities and, and how they treat their workforce, all of those things, trying to rate them relative to their peers in in terms of coming up with a way of um, quantifying that behavior and turning it into better or worse investment performance. And so we've gotten to the point of looking at materiality, and by definition, materiality means that it matters. So evaluating companies not based on what business they're in, but how they perform along material, environmental, social, and governance metrics has gotten us away from being judgmental about what business you're in, and then just evaluating companies like we would evaluate their financials. We just evaluate their business practices from a lens of environmental, social, and governance factors. So it sounds like the job is becoming more nuanced. And how does that work with people that have very strong values? I'll, I'll give you an example of something that I was chatting about on another podcast where I was talking to a portfolio manager running a a climate strategy who owns a lot of copper mining stocks. And a question that he was saying he often gets is, we're supposed to be protecting the environment here and the climate, and you own all these miners. And his answer was, well, all of those electrical vehicles that you want to keep the air clean, they need cobalt, they need lithium, they need nickel, they need copper. And it's got to come from somewhere. So how do you communicate to the clients, the people with the strong values and the strong beliefs, that this is actually quite nuanced? Um, I agree that it's nuanced. And there, you know, it's, it's hard to be more Catholic than the Pope in this situation because, you know, you don't, you don't want any hydrocarbons in your portfolio and yet you rely on them to get around so far. So, um, so I, think, I think it's fine to have to build portfolios that are still sort of in the SRI mindset of what your values are and what you don't want to invest in. And, you know, part of that could be, and we were talking about millennials, this idea of intentionality, that it's not that I'm not going to get in my car and drive, even though I might be carpooling. It's more about raising the cost of capital for those companies in a way that actually values their externalities properly. I mean, we've had a really hard time capturing the value of carbon into how we value businesses. I mean, businesses that generate a lot of carbon should have a higher cost of capital, and yet they don't because we haven't figured out from a global perspective how to value that. So maybe maybe having enough investors that refuse to invest in in hydrocarbon or extractive industries, even in your copper company, just raises the cost of capital for them. And, and makes them uh, makes their cost of doing business higher, which will hopefully make them better actors, um, so that there's a positive feedback loop there. But so that's that's just to say that values are values. So what's important to you may be different from what's important to me, and and I think it's possible to build portfolios around those values. I mean, you had mentioned Sharia funds, where if they exclude 30% of the benchmark are quite difficult to build and manage that risk. But if the client is aware of that risk, that then that's okay. 
I think most other areas, if you're only excluding, say, 10% of the investable universe, it's pretty easy to still build a portfolio around that particular value and cover that risk in a different way. For example, if you don't want any um, energy companies, at least hydrocarbon-based energy companies, you can mimic, and this is where we start talking about correlation, that you have correlated assets, say, green energy. It's still correlated to the energy sector because that's what it's replacing. It's higher risk, so you have to manage the risk differently, but you can cover that risk bucket. So as a as a portfolio manager, I don't want to judge you based on your values. I'm very happy to build a portfolio around that. Now, that's different from, I think, your question addresses the nuance of doing how companies operate. And therefore, we're no longer making the values judgment based on what they do, but how they operate. And then we start looking for material factors or factors that everyone can start to agree on that are relevant. So, so those are published through a lot of, you know, both from what companies are putting out through their corporate sustainability reports, as well as, you know, thousands of data gatherers so that you can get the data and then start analyzing and making sense of it and, and building out ways of analyzing companies for how they operate and building that into um, the screening tools that you use, which is what we do. I think that's a very important point that you make, that ESG means different things for different people, and uh, it ultimately comes back to their values. And there's, there's many things that I see as being somewhat contradictory. For example, most people screen tobacco. I haven't heard anybody screen ta- cannabis stocks. Uh, most people will screen tobacco, but they won't screen gambling in Australia. For example, you right. have ex-tobacco. Right. And Australia has one of the highest per capita gambling rates in the world, and we all know the social problems that that causes. Right. They will screen cluster munitions, but they're happy with other forms of arms generally in Australia, which never made sense to me because I don't think somebody being killed really cares how they were killed. So <laughs> it, it's it, there's all these sorts of interesting gray areas that come up in terms of, well, you know, whose who's values. Right. Um, how, how have you seen with some of the clients that you've worked with, how have they gone through that value setting process and how have they figured out what their value should be? <laughs> that is that is the right question. I mean, um, so we've managed money for religious organizations and so they they have, it's usually exclusionary. They'll say we don't want to invest in these particular types of companies. For example, um, Catholic foundations oftentimes don't want to invest in any company that has that makes any products that might terminate a pregnancy, and this includes birth control. So that, once you get to the healthcare sector, it excludes an awful lot of, of securities. And same goes for, for the Catholic charities, a lot of them don't want to invest in any kind of weapons. So that's one end of it. But otherwise, I think that it's still, we haven't settled on a language yet as to what all this means. And the asset owners want, they want their money to be used at least to do some good or at least to do no harm, but they haven't figured it out what it means. And so that's what makes this so exciting, actually. Because everyone is out there trying to figure out what that means and figure out a common language, or at least we can segment it and we can define it. And as a market participant, you should love gray. You should love this opportunity to figure it out because it it hasn't been settled yet. You know, everyone knows what a price to book ratio is. Everyone knows what a PE ratio is. There's no arbitrage there. I mean, there is arbitrage between them, but but there's nothing new there that you can um, that you can be involved in trying to figure out, you know, where the alpha is. And in ESG world, it's still in that stage of being settled, and so it's a great place to be involved in watching where the best thinking is going and how the standards are set. And who defines the values? And I think that we are going to end up in a world where it's it's bifurcated. 
And not only in two sides, not only in just what companies do, how they do it, but also is it just, is it material? Is it do no harm? Or is it, are we looking at um, fiduciary responsibilities, not only at the company and portfolio level, but at the societal level? So I think that we're, we're going to see that emerge over the next 10 years. And it's pretty exciting to be surfing that wave. You, you mentioned earlier that there's, a, there's a, a little bit of a generational effect in that older investors and fiduciary investors seem to be more in the do-no-harm camp, whereas the younger, the millennial generation, was much more about let's change the world camp. Right. Let's lose our money to yeah. change the world because they're used to doing that through boycotts of products and you know what they buy as being a way of using their capital to are, be intentional. Are there other camps in the ESG universe? How would you describe the main sorts of, if you call them, schools of thought? Uh, or is it still shifting so I think much? it's just shifting, and it depends on who who has the influence. Because I know, for example, a lot of university endowments get a lot of feedback from their alumni and from their students about what they invest in. And so the boards are under the gun to figure out a way of integrating some form of sustainability and ESG into their portfolios. But then their managers are going back to the boards and saying, well, define it for us because you say we, you want more, but we don't know what you mean, so define it for us. And then, then so there's, that's, this is exactly the conversation that's taking place, is what does it mean? What do you want? Okay, students who are boycotting outside of our offices, what do you want? You want us to just divest of all of our energy? Okay. But what else, right? Because pretty soon there's going to be, we're going to be limited in terms yeah. of what we can invest in. So, so help us define it. Help us figure this out. Um, and that becomes a much more nuanced conversation. It's, it's it? absolutely a nuanced yeah. conversation. And, and that also leads on to something interesting that you were saying earlier about the, the negative and the positive dimensions of all of this. And in many ways, the negative side is the easier side because particularly where things where people have strong values or they're highly emotional issues, it's it's fairly easy to just say cut, cut, right, cut. Right, right, right. The positive side is less clear cut yes. and needs a bit more thought. And you made some interesting points earlier about how you do that because you were saying that running fairly concentrated portfolios gives you the freedom not to own everything. That's right. And that allows you to do more on the positive side. So I'd be interested to hear you talk about that. Yes, yes. Um so when you're looking at a potential universe of 7,000 securities, which is what we look at because we invest globally, and so the investable securities that are just liquid enough for us to get in is about 7,000, and we're building portfolios where we're trying to cover the market risks um, in a reasonably concentrated way, so sort of a 50 to 60 stock portfolio, then just by sheer numbers, at least when we narrow that down by the risk exposures that we want to have, we can have an equally compelling investment for each of those positions, sort of maybe five to 20 times over. So within that sort of five to 20 stocks that we could buy for every risk exposure that we'd like to take, then we can be much more thoughtful about what those companies actually do. If they all look very similar in terms of their financial metrics, their growth rates, their exposure to certain competitive themes, regional themes, then we can really think about what they're doing. And and within that, we should be able, not every time, but within a portfolio to, to broadly build it out of companies that have the, the values that are associated with what that investment strategy is and that not only may be a do-no-harm, but may actually have impactful business models. And I think that's, that is sort of the goal, is that both by voting and you know, making it clear to, to companies that they need to report on these sorts of statistics and, and asking them about why they don't have diversity, that all that actually does go back to change company behavior. So it may not impact the products they manufacture but it will impact how they behave and that's so that already is is sort of reflecting that need by a lot of clients for for having their money do good or make change in the world that's positive can you perhaps give us an example of a a sector where you're able to look at the stocks that were available and 
and find a, a stock that fit the risk you were trying to match but had positive ESG characteristics? Sure. Um, well, you know, one of the broadest sectors um, in the global space and actually in the U.S. as well is industrials because there's so many different kinds of industrial companies. They're exposed to um, different parts of the economic cycle. Um, it, it almost seems like a, a sector where everything that is difficult to classify gets lumped in. And so you, you really have a very broad range of industries, many of which, because they're capital intensive, generate a lot of, of free cash flow uh, you know, in parts of their cycles and, and, and eat up a lot of cash flow during other parts of, of their cycle. So, so it's a sector, it's, it is a, it is a stock picking sector if you can do it right. Um, but there are companies there who are managing their capital very well, who are growing because let's say because of the need for, for clean power. And the one example that I'm thinking of that most people know is Vesta's which is uh, a wind, wind turbine producer uh, that, that fit into a very strong growth phenomenon, which, which has to do with the requirement for um, renewable energy in parts of the world. I'm sure Australia is heading that way, too, of getting rid of, first of all, coal, in some places nuclear, and what do you replace it with? Natural gas is a cleaner technology with less carbon, but it still produces carbon. Uh, and so looking at other forms of renewable energy uh, and, and wind has really become competitive with any other form of production except for maybe baseload nuclear because the marginal cost of nuclear is very low, even though the all-in cost is very high. So, so these large turbines, even though it's an intermittent source, if you have enough of them running in different locations, it's actually less intermittent than it seems. And so Vestas plays into that perfectly. And it's an industrial company. It's very capital intensive. Um, they have to spend a lot of money uh, building these big factories, and they take on a lot of risk um, with performance guarantees for their turbines. So, so, you know, it has a lot of warts all over it like industrial companies do, and yet it's, um, it's an easy one to at least consider for a portfolio as opposed to, you know, just a diesel engine producer, which it sort of has, would have similar kinds of risk characteristics to it. Okay. So running a concentrated portfolio, obviously you have a view on this, so I'm going to ask you the question. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the more diversified index products, uh, the ETFs based mm -hmm. on ESG or diversity indices, are they capturing these sorts of things or is that largely marketing? Um, sure. I think they do, they do capture it. At least, again, these are more, they're, they're more diversified. So, so they're, they're based on big numbers. And so I, I guess we, we'd call them here, a lot of them are called smart beta because they try to isolate a specific theme. And there's a number of ETFs, for example, that are gender related, um, that just look, just count women, count women at the, at the board level, at, at upper management, what percent of women, you know, if they have policies and you can build a pretty broad index that just isolates that one variable that you want to get performance out of. And does so, it matter that they're not looking at anything else? That they're not valuing companies, or well, it gets you the broad diversification of the market. And since we've been in a bull market for ten years now, mm -hmm. then that sort of diversification has worked. Very broad diversification with one form of they call it beta. I always thought I always thought it should be called smart alpha because that's a source of alpha. But you know th that's that's perfectly fine. Some people call it dumb alpha. You know, perhaps, alpha, perhaps. Yeah. So, so if you can isolate that one variable you want, I think it works. Um, what you're missing there is that they're static. So things are always happening in the market and it's a relative world. So things, things are changing and they don't necessarily pick that up except when they do index, you know, they, they reconstruct the index or they, they, what do they call it? Rebalance. Rebalance. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and then they have to 
you know, do the analysis again to see who's included, who's not in, in the index. But still, they get you exposure to, to that specific theme. Or you can look at low-carbon ETFs. So I think they're, they're a great starting point in, in turning us in, heading in that direction. And I think that they've paved the way or helped out active managers in the sense that they've created the value proposition. And so everyone who doesn't want to take more active risk has put their money there. And then that flow of capital has effectively lowered the cost of capital for those companies and, and raised it for the ones that aren't in those indices. So, so it's, it's great. It's less intentional and there's less of the, the sort of looking for, performance wherever it might be and in all kinds of markets. I think that's a a good way to sum it up. So the last question is a little bit of a trick question. You've mentioned that you've been in the industry and in other industries for a long time, seen a lot of things. What are some lessons that you had to learn the hard way? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, I think the humility is not necessarily where I started, but I think that this this business definitely teaches you that because you're wrong all the time. So I think that one of the lessons that I learned pretty quickly was that I was going to be wrong a lot, and that's okay. It's it's good to be wrong as long as you learn from that and also understand that that's part of the deal, that it's a big numbers game. And the reverse of that is that when you're right, it may be very well because you're lucky. So you have to try to learn as much from when you get things right as when you get things wrong. Um, so that was something that I continue to learn every year. I always think that I have something figured out, and I may have it figured out, but then something else will come along that I definitely hadn't learned before. Um, and so always keeping an open mind and being open to being wrong constantly is a lesson that I think you have to learn to be able to to work in this industry for as long as I have. <laughs> that doesn't come naturally to most people, does it? It's no. Quite hard, yeah. Not really, because that doesn't necessarily sell a product. I think that if you bring humility to the table when you're making a pitch, it might sound like you're uncertain about what you're doing. Well, that's the idea behind the name Market Fox, the column that I wrote. It's uh, Philip Tetlock's book, uh, Expert Political Judgment, where he found that the the most confident forecast, forecasters, which he called hedgehogs, were the ones that got all the TV and news appearances, and they were the ones that were wrong. Right. And the more flexible, uncertain forecasters, which he called foxes, um, nobody wanted to hear from them. But they actually, most of the time, did okay. Yeah. And it gets back to this desire for people to have certainty right um, perhaps the craziest example of that I saw there was a, a university in Thailand did a study where they had some university students so the educated people they had them flipping coins and everybody knows that a coin flip is the very definition of a random process and then they asked them whether they wanted to pay for an envelope that had inside the answer as to whether or not the next flip would be heads or tails because they'd win a prize if they guessed it right. Sure enough, a lot of them actually paid to receive tips on whether they should bet on heads or tails. And the researchers couldn't believe it because everybody knows that a coin flip is random and yet people will pay to remove uncertainty. Yes. Even when they know that they can't remove it. Yes, yes. It's true and there's a lot of that. So the market is so full of uncertainty and noise that you have to understand that piece of it, both when you're wrong and when you're right. The flip side of that is that it's okay to not know everything. <laughs> so that even even when you are right and when you are wrong and you figure it out, you're still not going to figure out a lot of times. Um, and so, so I think being comfortable with the uncertainty is another good lesson because otherwise you just you, you would never be able to sleep. Um, is, is to be uncomfortable with that uncertainty. And, and that sort of then opens it up yeah. when you know that it's there and that there's no way to, like I said, to be smarter than the market. Then you can go about building yourself a framework to sort of manage 
to keep yourself objective and also to give yourself bumpers so you don't get out of whack so that you Absolutely. can sort of keep doing things at the same time. And and one of my best mentors in the business, that's what that's what he told me. He said, Ifka, you're never going to be smarter than the market, but you can be more disciplined. That's so I right. think that's that's where you can really get an edge as an investor as long as you can try out that discipline and see, you know, where it works and where it doesn't and create create the framework that you need to sort of maintain that discipline and objectivity and, and not let the randomness um, either drag you down or take credit for it. Yeah. Well, Ivka, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I wish you all the best with the launch of Prometheus and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.